and welcome to episode nine of the Baseball from Home podcast. I'm Connor McKnight. He's Joe Brand, and we are brought to you, as always, by the House of L Podcast Network. Cubs Sox, Sox Cubs this weekend. Uh, a ton of fun for fans on the South Side, much less so for fans of the North Siders, but a very fun conclusion to a three-game series. We're going to get into both sides of town, as we always do here on the Baseball From Home podcast. I've been covering baseball for radio stations in Chicago the last 10 years. Joe's been broadcasting minor league ball for the last nine. He covers the White Sox and Cubs for WGN Radio. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm at C1McKnight. He is at Joe underscore brand one. Joe, the, the rundown for the show is super easy. I mean, not to spoil everybody's fun here, but being too radio veterans uh the pre-show meeting lasted about nine seconds and we were like all right let's do let's do cub socks and see what happens right i mean that's that's the show today i was a little hesitant how a cub socks series would look with no fans and i even wondered that about the players too because players have talked in the past how it'd be their first year in the the cub socks competition and they'd say yeah you know there is a little bit difference with these games you do feel a little bit more of an edge but uh, I know I, I've used this word a lot. That was vintage Cubs-Sox rivalry. I mean, there was nonstop trash talking. There was home runs galore. And I get it. That's what you're going to get when two teams are this good right now. But the game we saw on Sunday, I don't think we've seen a tight, intense Cubs-Sox game like that. Since maybe 2010, when Ted Lilly and I think Gavin Floyd were throwing dueling perfect games or dueling no-hitters, that, from start to finish, was a lot of fun. I was at that game. The Stanley Cup. Were you really? I was. I covered that game. The Stanley Cup was there as well, and everybody in the press box was way too obsessed with the Stanley Cup being there. And I remember, I think it was Scott Merkin and Doug Padilla, like right around the time that the six kicked in, the both of them had had their picture taken with the cup and whatever. I mean, everybody did. Don't get me wrong. Like I also had my picture taken with the cup that day because um, that's what you were doing. It was the first cup, so it mattered more. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, the six rolls around and everybody in the po- everybody in the press box is like, oh, God, no one's got a hit yet. We need to do our job. And, you know, it was before Twitter was a big deal, so nobody's on it. Speaking of Cubs sock series, Cubs Sox Twitter was a knife fight all weekend long, which is exactly where you want it to be. It's just fantastic. Uh, we're going to get into all of it. You should know, though, that none of this would be possible without David Hochberg and all of the fine folks at Team Hochberg. They helped me put a roof over my head, not because they're roofers, but because they deal with mortgages. That's what they do. And they got me mine. My home search was ridiculous uh, on my account, right? I didn't know what I was doing and had a lot of good people help me along the way. My realtor was fantastic and Team Hochberg was amazing. I stepped through a bunch of different stuff and made all kinds of mistakes, but the entire way Team Hochberg was like, don't worry, we got you. Anything you need, we're going to take care of it for you. You don't have to worry. Make fewer mistakes, but they didn't make a single one. That's why you should use them. Give them a call, 855-56-DAVID, or head to the website at 56david.com. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender, NMLS 1124061. So, Sox win the series, so we need no coin flip for Episode 9 of the Baseball From Home podcast. Let's start with the Sox, and let's go. Let's go night by night, right? I'd like to go game one, game two, game three, kind of through each team's 
uh, respective portion of the pod. The White Sox with a series win over the Cubs are now 45.9 and 27, according to the crazy math of 2020. They had won seven in a row leading into Sunday's game, but Friday night's was an old-school beatdown of a guy who didn't have his quality stuff, but in the past, and believe me, I have covered these White Sox teams, in the past, that kind of guy, a crafty lefty who understands what he's got on a given night and maybe isn't making all of his pitches, still gets away with a couple of innings, keeps his team in it, and the White Sox hadn't pulled that game out in the last couple of years. They beat the hell out of John Lester and let everybody know that they had no problem doing it. That was, I mean, it's, I feel weird. It's its almost not worth talking about that game, except it is, right? I mean, that was, that's just what you're supposed to do against a guy who doesn't have it. Well, that's what was so cool about Sunday's game is because the drama just all all built up all weekend and it's it's not as a dramatic of a game without the background of what happened Friday and Saturday night I mean you think about it the Sox leave this series still getting all of their runs on home runs they just had more of them on Friday and Saturday than they did on Sunday you're right it wasn't John Lester's best outing it was it was his worst of the year And we know that the Sox just wallop on left-handed pitching. But I think the impressive thing is it's not like Lester was getting burned on bad pitches all the time. I mean, sure, he left a few hangers or meatballs up there. But this Sox offense is hitting different home runs on different pitches in different parts of the zone. They're using all parts of the field. And they're just once again showing how good they can be when they're all contributing. Somebody mentioned on Sunday's game about walking Jose Abreu. I, th- I think it was Jason Benetti. But he's like, the whole lineup is, is on fire right now. There's there's no point to do that because you're just shooting yourself in the foot then and giving an opportunity to give more RBIs for the guys after him. Everybody was on top of their game, especially Friday. Saturday, it took more of getting to the bullpen. But Friday night is what Sox fans have been waiting for, and they were ready to just feast on the buffet. Luis Robert whipped that ball like like he's been doing it for years. You know, and I know if White Sox fans are going to look through all of the games against the Cubs, and really his whole season, he strikes out on some pitcher's pitches. He strikes out on some pitches that are designed for him to get up and out of the strike zone primarily, and, and some breaking stuff too. Um, but I I don't know about you, Joe. The kid's 22 turned 23 a couple of weeks ago. He's never seen stuff like this. Is This is what I expect of a 22-slash-23-year-old ball player. I, I don't – it doesn't worry me one bit. He doesn't seem to take any of that out into the outfield. He still takes fly balls away from Aloy Jimenez, which is a good thing. He still hits home runs. And he's still, he's still trying to beat out the back half of a double play if he ever puts it on the ground, which is incredibly rare. I have zero issues with the small flaws. with the I shouldn't say small. With the few but glaring flaws that exist in Luis Roberts' game right now. Zero problems with it. I think it's two things. It's, it's number one, he set the bar so high for himself when he first came into the league. But... He was able to adjust and and take advantage of mistakes by pitchers at the beginning of the season. We're not wrong for saying that in the past. Now I just think maybe he's getting a little bit eager because that confidence rose so quickly when he first jumped into the league. 
You talk about him defensively. I, I really noticed it this weekend. There's just a difference when he catches the ball, and whether it's a difficult play or an easy one, he's got that whole glove right next to his chest type thing that Albert Almora does where he just he knows he's in the perfect position for it. This whole weekend seemed like any time the Cubs elevated a ball to center field, I didn't even have to see where it was going to go. Like, okay, yeah, I, I know Luis Robert has that one. I'm with you, but the problem is – that might be more glaring for Sox fans is they, they've got a lot of players that can swing and miss and whiff a lot. So I think when Luis Robert goes into those tendencies, it's kind of highlighted a little bit more because he's supposed to be the above all be all guy that doesn't have any holes or, or mistakes at the plate, but they're going to happen, especially for a rookie. Like you said, the problem is a lot of the Sox hitters are like that. So it can get a little bit contagious. And maybe we did see that towards the end of Sunday's game. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think still, you know, although it's a glorious weekend for the White Sox, like how often can this team walk to support itself when you don't have, you know, seven home runs leaving the ballpark against seven different pitchers over a three-game set? Like all, all those questions I think are fair but I think they're all questions that we were asking when we started the season as well. So I'm I'm more willing to let that dog kind of lie. If if we want to pick at it as the season goes, I think that's okay. And once the White Sox have their playoff draw, because I stated this before, this like you and I both figured both of these teams were set for a playoff spot. What with 16 teams getting it, once we get their playoff draw, then you know the the walks are going to be an issue, right? Can you consistently be on base and? you know, hit three-run shots, squiggly numbers as opposed to straight lines. Like, that's going to be a difference. On the other side of things, uh, Dallas Keuchel's night was interesting in Game 1. Eight innings, six hits, the one run, the one walk, and three strikeouts. He was very good, especially in his middle innings, and got a little loose toward the end. But I, I thought it was interesting, and I, I happened to be – I flipped back and forth between um, Jason Benetti and Steve Stone – and Len Casper and his rotating cast of Sean Marshall and Ryan Dempster. By the way, get well, JD. I hope you're feeling well. Miss you on the broadcast. But I was thinking that with the big lead that Ricky Renneria's team had given him, that he'd pull Keuchel a little early and not let him go eight innings. I think there was a couple of, uh, a little traffic in the sixth, and I thought, okay, you know, maybe go get him and let the bullpen do this. We're in a short season. You want as many starts from him as you can, especially considering the injuries you'd had. I wonder if you thought at all about because of the season, not because of, you know, Keuchel or where this bullpen is or anything like that, but because of what they're actually facing, about pulling Keuchel for his own good at that point, for the start three weeks from now, where he needs to go a little deeper. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I guess I somewhat thought of that, but then I just looked at the score and, and saw, what was it, 8 nothing at the time, so that that's pretty understanding. The other thing is, I, I guess at that point, you're still expecting for the Cubs to come out with an explosive big run. I mean, they, they just really hit a wall offensively in this series, but at that point, that's not quite the case, so at least you wait until there's a little bit more trouble. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how, but maybe you can compare it to the Dylan C situation on on Sunday, but we can get into that later too. Um, I don't know. I, I think Dallas Keuchel earns it, and I think that's going to be a tough conversation on the mound to, to pull him right there. And uh, the other thing is Javier Baez is a guy that is grounding out into a lot more double plays this year. 
Uh, we can get into his struggles eventually too, but maybe you see him coming up in in that inning a little bit later. You know Dallas Keuchel's a ground ball pitcher. I mean, that is what happened. Um, but yeah, I, I think maybe just a culmination of all those things. I, I totally get where you're saying, especially with how good the Sox bullpen has been this year. But um, yeah, I I, I I I get what you're saying, but I think I think I would have kept Keuchel in there. I think that's fair. I mean, if he if he says he wants it, he gets it. He's been around long enough, and he wants to keep working. He can keep working. I just, you know, I, I wondered about it, and you know me, Joe. Like I've I've been wanting managers to be far more aggressive, not just Ricky, but like managers just all around baseball to be far more aggressive with their pitchers because of this season. I I think that's smarter since we're only playing sixty, since we're hopefully playing sixty games. But, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, Ke- if Keuchel's not the guy you have to be proactive with. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, you're looming at Reynaldo Lopez throwing on Saturday. You're not quite sure how far he's going to go, so maybe that's in the back of his head, try to get a well-rested bullpen for Saturday, even though that wasn't really the case that they needed. Um, well, well then, then let's get to Saturday's game, because I would love to talk about Reynaldo Lopez. First, though, uh, Saturday's game is the 7-4 win, Sox over the Cubs. Luis Robert hits another shot, that one off Hendricks, which, man. And then the Jose Abreu shot, another one. Uh, he's he's just... I, I Jose Abreu is magical right now. You know what I... Did you see... I mean, this is Sunday's game, so we get to it in a second. But uh, the Marquee Network did a good job of showing it. When they finally got Jose Abreu out... Uh, Anthony Rizzo was doing the shake the baseball thing. He wanted the baseball like for the Hall of Fame case because they finally got Jose Abreu out. I loved it. I thought it was great. Jose's been fantastic. And I think both broadcasts did a really good job of pointing out like the 0-2 curveball that he hit, for instance. Like, Do not put that there. He's hitting breaking balls in the strike zone. Stop throwing him breaking balls in the strike zone or he will destroy you. You could tell how locked in he was by Sunday when he's just totally laying off those sliders just outside of the zone. I mean, you're only able to do that when you're 100% zoned in. I did see one tweet that said, uh, this is finally Jose Abreu getting the credit he deserves from all of the baseball world. I mean, he's been a he's been a mainstay on the south side of Chicago since 2014 now. He... The argument has to be addressed that he's been underappreciated because he's been so consistent and he's a guy that, you know, can be a leader in this clubhouse. But yeah, he was just on top of everything this entire weekend. And again, it's it's not just one pitch. It's not just one place in the zone. He was on top of everything. He was ready for everything. And he just demolished everything. I, I was really expecting them to walk him in his uh, fifth at-bat that was not a home run by Sunday, uh, no matter the situation. Just just Barry Bonds it, and yep, we're, we're walking him. We're, we're tired of him beating us. I wonder if, if there are, you know, obviously this season sucks, right? The fact that we're only playing 60 games and that you and I are doing this podcast video Zoomed is instead of like in person and hanging out sucks. But I wonder if there's a, a couple of players that benefit from it. And I wonder if Jose Abreu might be one of them. Over the last two seasons, you can see an obvious drop in on-base percentage and power from Jose Abreu, specifically when he's hitting against the same-handed side of, of the matchup. That's okay. Like that's You understand that 
aging right-handed sluggers, you know, guys who go 31, 32, 33 and are right-handed and play first base, like that's the most predictable skill set decline we have in baseball, right? They all kind of go this way. But if Jose Abreu has gotten a little healthy, off his feet a little more, only plays 50-something games this season and comes back for his age 34 year next year with that same kind of, you know, spryness in his swing, I, I wonder if this might help a guy like that just a little bit or, or maybe even just help him hold off father time for a second. Yeah, maybe that and maybe just the fact that he's not the guy that the offense needs to rely on. They they don't need him uh, putting together the long veteran at-bats. They don't need him always with the clutch hit because now they've got a handful of guys that can do it. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I, again, I, I think Jose Abreu is a guy that Chicago sports fans and Sox fans need to appreciate a little bit more. I'm, I'm sure they will now. I don't think anyone will underappreciate him. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's just he's just been so consistent, like you said, to turning it up another notch this season. Maybe it's a long time coming for him, but – I don't know. It's it's just good to see all around for him. I so I wanted to get into the Ronaldo Lopez decision, and I I would really love to know. And Ricky, I guess, talked about it a little bit after the game, knowing that they were kind of going to piggy. What what this was for Ronaldo Lopez was a glorified rehab start, right? Guys like James Fegan have written this. The White Sox have essentially tacitly admitted this. That's what this was. This was getting him as many pitches as he could under the controlled environment with Gio Gonzalez backing him up as they as they possibly could. My question going into the game, and I'll say this first, everything worked out perfectly decision-wise for the White Sox and for Ricky in this ballgame. But going into the game, you've got the off day tomorrow, right, on Monday, then two against the Pirates, who just won back-to-back games for the first time in what feels like a decade, but this season. And then you have the off day again after you face the Pirates for just two games. You have some rested starters, the White Sox had the ability to move that rotation around because of the off days and facing a JV team in Pittsburgh pretty much anywhere they wanted to. I I was confused as to why the Chicago Cubs, given the way they were playing coming into this series, was the destined choice of throwing Reynaldo Lopez in his 50 pitches with Gio Gonzalez behind him. I didn't quite understand it. I still quite don't. But they got everything they wanted to see out of Lopez and out of that game. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. I didn't even really think about that. Um, I guess in a shortened season, you just maybe want to know some answers quicker than you possibly can. So let, let's throw him out against a good team because if we're going to be using him later in the season, we need him to get outs against a good team. Um, yeah, that, that's totally fair. I mean, the last time we were talking, we brought up the whole Dane Dunning situation and when do you start the conversation of r- realizing that Dunning is a more valuable asset than Reynaldo Lopez. Um, I also do like this whole Gio Gonzalez backing up Reynaldo Lopez thing. It's, it's a tactic that the Houston Astros really used in the minor leagues. I mean, they honestly had a, a rotation of like, 10 guys and they had so many tandems and they would swap every day. I'm not saying to go to that extent, but who knows? Maybe if you've got a guy like Gio Lopez, or rather Gio Gonzalez, you know he can go a handful of innings. You know he's going to be the backup guy for Reynaldo Lopez. 
if you-know-what hits the fan. Maybe that pumps in a little bit more confidence for Reynaldo Lopez as well, knowing that, hey, if I don't get past the second inning, it's not in the hands of the bullpen. It's it's to a veteran guy yeah. that knows how to, how to eat innings and get things done. So maybe that's the reason why they did it. Um, but it's it's totally a good question to bring up. I'm I'm pleased with the way that Lopez threw, limited the damage in the second inning. He was using that slider to chase pitches. He looked pretty good. And I, I think they were in the right for just pulling him at the fifty pitch mark, whatever it was, whatever his limit was. Um yeah, like you like you said though, they really played everything perfectly in that game. I know a lot of White Sox fans were pissed that Yohan Mankata wasn't in the lineup on Friday. That didn't really matter or end up mattering. I know there were maybe some questions for Sunday's game too, but but you're right. Saturday was uh, pretty much all the right buttons. Yeah, and I, I don't even mind. You know, Ricky goes out there to talk with Gio Gonzalez late in that game. I think it was the last hitter he faced. It was David Bodie in the nine spot. And I, you know, that's a, that's a a manager leaving what is essentially a starting pitcher in to face the nine hitter when he's got the lead. I, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that move. I'm okay with that trust. Gio got away with a couple, not on that at bat in particular, but Gio got away with a couple and so did Lopez really. But let's get to Sunday's game. If, we, if baseball from home was the title of the show and then, the, you know, all your textbooks are like baseball from home, colon, a study in civil engineering or whatever it would be baseball from home colon connor is a dylan cease apologist comma we're sorry right i mean just let's get that out of the way that's where i'm at i'll let you know when i come around or change my mind or whatever but i'm not gonna do it after sunday's start that was fine there was like on the job learning he rolled a curveball to kyle schwarber when he was ahead in the count okay kyle schwarber the ever loving hell out of it fine i get that that's a good outing. That's a that's a get through some choppy water outing. You got the double play ball when he needed it. The breaking ball looked really good. The fastball's getting there, I think. And if he wants to put the change up in the pocket every now and again, that's fine too. I am encouraged by that Dylan C start more than discouraged. Yeah, I'm definitely more of a fan of seeing the curveball from him more than that change up. Um, I, I thought the fastball was still an improvement today. I thought it was well-placed. I think the biggest thing, though, is him getting out of that inning after the double error by Yoan Mankata. Uh, the moment that play at home was overturned, I thought there is no way that the Cubs are winning this game. The Sox have not only taken the momentum, they have stolen it. Um, I was watching the NBC broadcast at the time, and I, I, they kept talking about doing the uh, time codes, and I, I really would have liked to see that but they never did. They could only show each replay in its individual form. And I, I, I was intrigued. I, I thought in real time, it, he looked out. When we saw the replay, I didn't think there was conclusive evidence that he was safe. But I thought if you matched up the time codes, you would have gotten your answer. Because there was one where you could see his foot on the plate, but you couldn't see where the glove was. And then vice versa on the camera behind home. So I was really hoping we'd see that. Um, and the other crazy thing is Jason and Steve totally jinxed the home plate umpire he was having a great game and like the moment they said that he was he was missing missing pitches in the zone I thought he had a great call of of that play at home we just talked about but then you know who knows what really happened um but heck I guess the mistakes were even on both sides anyway back to Dylan Cease yes just a learning moment like you said um there was some speculation about him taking the ball still in the, or, you know, going against Schwarber in the sixth, but 
you're starting the inning against a struggling Javier Baez. Nobody's warming up at that point. Baez, what, swung at the first or second pitch to double? Um, I know you got a well-rested bullpen, but, I mean, the dude is rolling. And, and let him just, just go with it and see what he can do against Schwarber. Like you said, Schwarber's going to run into a pitch every once in a while. But, um, yeah, that's another progressive start for Dylan Cease in my eyes. Yeah, and I, what are you going to do? You're going to have guys warming when he goes out there to start the inning against Baez and Schwarber? Like, that's – I mean, you know, Joe. You've seen it in the minor leagues. Like, guys – Guys start to get wonky when that happens. They need to have a little bit of trust laid out for them when they start innings at times. And, you know, as, as much as much as Ricky gets, you know, some crap for pitching decisions, and hell, we've give, I've given him some here on the pod, like what he understands is when pitchers can have a little trust given to them. What they do with that is up to them, but he understands how to offer that to his starters. And I, I don't think that happens enough for a lot of rotations around baseball. Um, whether it has to happen in this day and age is another question, right? Because if you just do have that flamethrower coming out of the bullpen, use him. You don't have to teach that lesson. But I think the White Sox, given the way they're constructed and look like they want to be constructed for years going forward, are a team that does need to teach those kinds of lessons to big league starters as they come up in this business. I'm I'm okay with airing on that side of things in that game, in, in that game in particular. And, and especially with Dylan Cease. I mean, how many times did we talk last year about even if Dylan Cease struggled last year, it was all oh, the experience that he's getting. And, and even if there's one good thing of a bad outing, it's still a learning moment for Dylan Cease moving forward. I'm trying to find the stat right now. I'm hoping I find it soon, but I guess not. I thought his numbers when facing a lineup like the third time through, his success in the first inning will typically tell how good he is for the rest of the game. Um, but this is a guy that was not only handling the Cubs offense. I mean, he was working out of jams that that double play wasn't the first one. So you don't want to steal away a dude's confidence, especially with the year that he's had right now. You don't want to mess with that. You want to keep that going. And especially in a series like this, where I think the whole team is just feeling themselves. And until that final out was made, it was the Sox game. I felt I, I thought so too, even with as, as good as you Darvish looked, and and he was just terrific all afternoon long. I did not expect at all, and it and it didn't look like those Cubs typically look right. I mean this this looked like a series. And I know this is the Sox portion of the pod, but it matters. That Sox uh, that Cubs dugout is a fun one. They're bouncing around all the time. They have all that kind of stuff going on. the The Sox took that from them. They just they did. I mean they. They just did. They ended that. And they were, once Schwarber hit the dinger, you could tell it was like a balloon popped in there. And everybody got to relax a little bit. And everybody kind of, you know, like, oh, thank God we have runs now. And they're not beating the hell out of us around the neck and shoulders anymore. This is great. Like, you could, you felt that happen. And it goes goes a long way, I think, for a young team like that, like like the White Sox are, to go take care of business in a situation that maybe they shouldn't have, you know, maybe in other instances they shouldn't have, but they went in there and they earned two out of three. And I, I really thought they had game three all afternoon long. Well, we, we talked 
I don't know, on a recent podcast about how the Cubs jubilation in the dugout can probably be super annoying to the other team. And I, I think the Cubs probably got a taste of their own medicine because, yeah, it's it's funny when you're hitting home runs left and right and everyone's having a good time. It's a whole nother story when a dude homers in four straight at bats. It just gets to that laughable, oh my God, look at this guy type feel. And I, I think the Cubs were probably just tail between their legs at that point. Another thing that Jason mentioned on the broadcast was how loud the Sox dugout got on that double play that Cease induced to end that inning. I mean, that's that's huge. And um, th- that Schwarber home run was the Cubs' first lead since Wednesday. I know they had an off day on Thursday, but that is a long time to be down. And again, with the Sox setting that tone on Friday with all those home runs, it's tough to come back from. Would you like to see, um, I, I know it's been talked about a little bit with Ricky, uh, so feel free if that's just the perspective there. I understand it. Would you like to see the White Sox use their catchers in the lineup more often, like McCann and Grandal in the lineup, in t- one DHing, one for, you know, however however Ricky feels like, you know, doling it out there. But they've got two really interesting bats, and a lot of teams are using two catchers in a lineup if they've got that luxury because um, there are a number of much better-hitting catchers than there used to be right now. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because the Cubs sure do it a lot, and um, Zach Collins, I think, is a much better catcher and hitter than Josh Fegley. So we keep. I, I brought up one of the first podcast we did how you do somewhat put your dh in danger when you have both two catchers in the lineup because if someone goes down with injury you could lose that dh um if it is the the catcher going down but i guess maybe part of it is with going out and buying edwin encarnacion and as pretty much your dh it's not how the lineup was built uh if, if Edwin continues to struggle, yes, I would like to see more Yasmani Grandal and James McCann out there. Um, I'd like uh, We talked before, I'd like to see James McCann catching Lucas Giolito the entire way out, maybe one or two for Yasmani Grandal. But, but yeah, sure, sure. I, I could totally see the argument for seeing more of two catchers in the lineup, uh, especially right now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Now? You mentioned Encarnacion. I, I think today's game, Sunday's game is is going to make me softly ask a question for the next week or so, and that's how healthy is Encarnacion really? Um, is there a ding, a veteran tweak, uh, something like that? Veteran tweaks are tough. You usually got to pay double for those. But, like, what are – he didn't pinch hit for Mazzara late in that game, and Mazzara ends up getting on with a, you know, kind of seeing-eye single. I don't know that anybody hits the ball on the ground and hard more often than Nomar does. I – Ugh, good luck with that. Um, still, though, I, that's a spot for Edwin. He doesn't get used there. I know Ricky's looking for a spot to hit Edwin in, in that game, and if it's not there, then I start have to asking. Uh, I start having to ask the question: How healthy is he? Maybe just something to look for down the line is all I'm saying. Yeah, no, and I know a lot of White Sox fans were thinking that as it happened. Um, I, I don't think Nomar Mazzara's at bat in the seventh inning by keeping you Darvish in the game for a few more pitches is what led to Ricky 
keeping him in the game rather than using Encarnacion. But I don't know. I guess I'd have to look at the splits. And, but off the top of my head, isn't Encarnacion pretty much the same between righties and lefties? Because yeah. you got yeah. you got a righty-righty matchup right there. Um, Plus, there's a whole he's been doing this for a decade, and uh, one of them's Nomar Mazzara, and the other guy's in Encarnacion. <laughs> regard. I mean, I, I but that's that's just where I'm at. I'm not high on Nomar, so there's there's that. I I mean, I get it. You've got plenty of reason not to be high on Nomar. Heck, I said on Twitter that that single down the left field line against you Darvish may have been his biggest at bat of the season even though he swung at a ball but you keep Darvish out there for a few more pitches you lessen the chance of him coming out in the eighth you get to that Cubs bullpen quicker and that Cubs bullpen tried to cough up that game to the White Sox but they just for some reason on Sunday they were too strong to let it down so the Sox have the off day Monday today as you're listening to this podcast more than likely Tuesday and Wednesday it's the Pirates where Lucas Giolito and then Dallas Keuchel get starts then it's the off day again and then it's Kansas City and I I I, I only want to do this quickly because uh, I know we got to get to the Cubs here but Dane Dunning gets another start against the Royals. Like, is that? I I think that's where we set up, and that rotation goes to a tandem Reynaldo, Gio Gonzalez thing again. I'm totally fine with that action. Yeah, absolutely for me too. I, like I said, you know, you use Lopez in that game against the Cubs to see how he can do, and not only is his comeback outing, but against a good team and a good offense. Even though the White Sox didn't make the Cubs look very much like that this weekend. Um, and that sets you up for maybe a less stressful outing for Dane Dunning, and you get to see what he can do in his second major league start. Again, I'm a big fan of the the Lopez-Gonzalez setup. It just seems like the White Sox situation right now, it fits them perfectly to do that. It takes less pressure off each guy. You totally utilize Gio Gonzalez, and and it helps out the bullpen a little bit too. I know it's one less arm in the bullpen, but with how well the bullpen has done this year and the three batter minimum rule, you kind of get a little bit more wiggle room that way. Yeah. Yeah. And Colomay's success helps you out there too. I mean, just the way he's been throwing, it's like, okay, you, you can take that inning and put it on the shelf because you figured he's going to be pretty okay for you. Let's get to the Cubs part of this Cubs White Sox series. And we go all the way back, hit the rewind button, to Friday night's game where John Lester was absolutely crushed by everyone. Everybody. Everybody hit him hard. And really, the the Cubs that night hit the ball hard, too. Like, there were some shots that found mitts, right? Tim Anderson sitting out there fielding 110 and 115-mile-an-hour ground balls. Like, those are barrels, my friend. They just didn't find the space in the diamond to go for base hits. Um, I don't think Cubs fans should take any solace in in that offense and in, in what it did look like. But I I will John Lester is dead when he decides he's dead. I am done. Done taking the one start of his or the three starts of his or even the five stretch where he doesn't look like he can get that cutter into right handers anymore. I he's dead when he says he's dead. I, I have full faith in his being able to resurrect himself into 
above average major league starter in in 2020. Didn't he have an outing against the Pirates a few years back where he coughed up like eight runs or ten runs in the first inning, and then he oh yeah he bounced back with a, even more than a quality start. Uh, yeah, I'm totally in agreement with him. I mean, it's 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 John Lester. You know what you're going to get from the majority of the season of John Lester. Uh, for the Cubs offense, and this goes to what we've talked about all year long, is is how the Jason Kipnisses and the Steven Souza Juniors and the Ian Happs and the Jason Haywards, they're performing above what you expected them to. But now what's catching up is a slight decline, maybe aside from Ian Happ against lefties, but a decline in that category and a consistent decline of Javier Baez and the absence of Chris Bryant. I mean, it's nothing new, but this team might only go as far as how well Baez and Bryant do. I mean, they're, they're staples in the lineup. They're, they're huge pieces of this offense and the overall team. But I think you're seeing that catch up to the Cubs right now. I mean, they really squeaked away with a win on Sunday. And as much as the bullpen nearly coughed it up, that's the reason why they didn't get swept in this series. I really wonder what this weekend would have felt like and looked like if you Darvish didn't pitch that well and if Kyle Hendricks didn't. I, I, I know he didn't have a fantastic outing, but if it could have looked a lot worse this weekend. It really could have. No, it absolutely could have. Um, and I suppose, you know, you bring up a good point here because while we wanted to go game by game, I, I don't know that we can talk about this. We shouldn't talk about this Cubs perspective part of the series without mentioning the Chris Bryant news. He's on the injured list now. It's the 10-day injured list. It's listed as the the ring finger that's the problem, but he's also got a wrist issue. And and I'm sorry, but given the way I'm I'm watching guys like Contreras and Baez take at bats, not having Chris Bryant is brutal for this offense right now. And I understand that Chris Bryant wasn't seeing the ball well, and I understand that he absolutely was not hitting it well over the first 20 games or so of this season. But Chris Bryant's more likely than not to bounce back into an above-average hitter for what's ever left of this year if he stays healthy. Wrists, fingers, I guess, to a lesser extent for hitters, but wrists especially, they worry the hell out of me. That's like that D. Lee thing, right? I mean, that's that that's that wrist issue that pops up for guys and just steals something from you for a long time. And it takes a while to figure out how to hit if you've got a wrist issue. You know, hit with a wrist issue going on, I mean. And it takes a while for the wrist issue itself to heal often. This is a this is a problem for the Cubs offense right now. And and I think you know, I don't know that klaxons need to be going off because you still have Baez and Contreras and Schwarber and Rizzo, right? These are guys that should hit. But I don't want to have to make that excuse over and over again every season since midway through 17, damn it. Well, okay. So, I mean, I guess the question I ask you then is, would you rather see a Chris Bryan at like 90% right now in this shortened season than watching the Cubs or, or allowing the Cubs to let him fully heal. I mean, I know it's not that cut and dry, but you know what I mean? To like totally become back to the healthy Chris Bryant that he can be. I mean, that that's that's a tough line to walk because, because of his contract status, because of this season, but also because of the urgency of of them needing a healthy and good Chris Bryant in the lineup. I think it's easy to mash up the Cubs in these three games because they looked – 
kind of all a lot alike. Um, Friday, not so much. I mean, I know Lester got shelled early, but that, the Cubs were down by a run until the eighth inning on Saturday, and Sunday was just nervousness from the first pitch until the last. But Javier Baez struggled immensely this weekend. Wilson Contreras played and batted mad this weekend. He uh, got mad at Lopez for throwing inside, and whether or not he thought it was intentional, you could still tell it got under his skin, and okay, I'm not out there getting hit with 90-mile-per-hour fastballs in my arm, but, but still, twice is a mistake by Reynaldo Lopez. Move on from it. Then he gets caught making a base running mistake on Sunday and almost cost, well, no, costing the Cubs another rally. I mean, they cannot have that right now because that can be just as just as contagious as a team rolling. So, yeah, what do you do with Chris Bryant this year? Do you get him out there as soon as the doctor gives him the okay, or do you make sure he is 100% going to be Chris Bryant when he comes back? Uh, you play him if you're winning, and you sit him if you're not. I don't... I don't know what this season is. That's the I, I don't know if you read uh, Patrick Mooney's piece in The Athletic. He was talking to Theo Epstein about the trade deadline. Um, Mooney's, I, it, I, should, I should rephrase. I, I read Mooney's. Many have written it. It was kind of a pool spray sort of thing. They don't have the money. They don't have money. There's, there's no help coming. You know, there's, no, there's no trade deadline acquisition. There's no, maybe there's a, there's a bullpen arm and some cash or something. I, I don't know. But there's very little on the way, it looks like, for the Cubs. And I and I don't blame them, right? They shouldn't be citing finances. They've got plenty of money. That's a different issue than do we trade any part of our future, any little bit, for whatever this season is. I wouldn't do it if I were them. But Contreras worries the hell out of me, Joe. I, I think you picked up on a lot of really important issues here, especially with his game. He is playing angry, and when he plays angry, he plays fast. And when he plays too fast, especially in the batter's box, he swings at crap. And when he swings at crap, he continues to swing at more crap, trying to get him out of the I'm swinging at crap phase. It's bad. It's very, very bad. And then, even in Saturday's game where he's getting some strikes for Kyle Hendricks, I don't know how you how you work those framing numbers. Because the, the man is like, it's like he's trying to steer an indie car without any power steering whatsoever. He's just wrenching these balls back into the strike zone, praying that a home plate umpire gives him something that is not how one frames a pitch he got way more called than he needed to but the guy's all back to being all over the place behind the plate and scares the hell out of me scares the daylights out of me <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely um the best catchers are so good at it because you're right it's not just a wrist or hand thing it's a whole body positioning thing because it, it's not like i don't know if the pitch is if your arm is fully extended, you catch it and you move your hand back very quickly. That's not going to create the illusion of a strike. It's the way you position your body and be like, well, look at how, how could it be out of the zone if I'm looking totally this way? And it hides your hand more so they can't see exactly where it was placed, or at least it's a it's a harder view. If you can ever see it, oh, man, A.J. Perzinski does it awesome on an intentional walk back when they actually threw the balls in intentional walks and he just does this thing where he catches it he's standing and he kind of drops his shoulder and then drops his elbow and all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh that does kind of look like a strike you know he's doing it sarcastically right but the way he does it is, is just so pretty um and it's it's funny because it's also very aj pierzynski uh but yeah i don't like an angry wilson Contreras for all the points that you mentioned another one is he loves to throw down to third base 
on pitches down in the dirt where the runner takes off and he thinks he's got a shot at getting him and he really does not. You need a calm, cool, and collected Wilson Contreras. And another thing of why he's able to not be so reckless while catching Kyle Hendricks and framing up those pitches is because he knows how Kyle Hendricks works. He, he's got a great read on those pitches, so that works to his advantage, but only so that it doesn't. It, they don't get crossed up. I mean, with what he's trying to do with framing up the pitches, he can be a little bit more liberal with it because he knows how Kyle's pitches work. So in Saturday's game, I watched the uh, White Sox broadcast a little bit more than I watched the uh, the Cubs broadcast on Marquee. And I'm I'm with Steve Stone on something about Kyle Hendricks that, that he noticed. I, I think Kyle ran into a little bit of an issue that Jose Quintana has run into at times. These guys are strike throwers, right? I mean, they're they're throwing strikes. They're coming after the strike zone. And the White Sox are more than happy to swing at anything close. I, I needed Kyle to work outside the strike zone a little bit more. Barring that, I would have liked to see more curveballs from him. That's what Steve Stone had kind of mentioned. That's something I'm on board with. Uh, I don't know that it's something I, I worry about as like a, a long-term issue for Kyle. I think it's maybe just something in that start where... You know, pitch mix is this curveball really becomes uh, like a, a primary offering, right? Like something you can go to that it's not just his fastball, his two change, and the and the curveball. I think Kyle's fine. I, I don't worry about that particular start. I worry about the offense a lot more, and I don't worry about you Darvish at all because on Sunday, you Darvish was magnificent absolutely magnificent he got away with a couple of pitches sure but I thought what he got away with was was because the slider started doing what it was doing in the fourth and the fifth and the sixth my god and I and I love watching you Darvish work with whoever's behind the plate right but in this instance you know Contreras realize that this pitch is working this one of the 11 is working throw the hell out of it just keep throwing it Loved it. Well, yeah, and that's that's the beauty of when you have that many pitches and you're an established major league pitcher, you're able to just kind of go down the line like, all right, this one works, so we'll, we'll use this today. You're right, though. It got better as the game got along. Uh, there were a few times he, he got away from a few mistakes. I forget exactly whom, but, uh, oh, I think Luis Robert just just missed on, on a slider that was hanging in the middle of the zone. Um, but then by the end of it, by the seventh inning, I'm like, I'm thinking in my head, if he gets out of this seventh, you really have to think about keeping him in the eighth just because the Cubs bullpen is so shaky. The White Sox are already in their heads about this breaking pitch because they were a lot more chase happy on Sunday. I think mainly because it was a combination because Darvish was pitching so well and because they were so locked in on Friday and Saturday. It's like, all right, yeah, we can swing it whatever, wherever, and it'll go out of the ballpark. Um, And I think that's why... Steve Stone probably mentioned the thing about Kyle Hendricks throwing it out of the zone and and why that would have worked to his benefit a little bit more. But yes, you uh, Darvish being able to do that shows me that either he's back to being you Darvish, and I know we've talked about this a lot this year and parts of last season too, but the way he's able to improve that pitch, roll with that pitch, whatever pitch it is, today it was the slider, 
shows me that he's got a lot more confidence in himself. I mean, heck, even the Abreu home run, he just kind of smiled and was like, man, that was, that was a pretty good pitch. What am I supposed to do? And, and we see him on Twitter. I mean, we see his personality. He's a guy that can poke fun and probably make fun of himself every once in a while. So, so it's good to see him do that. But, um, yeah, I, I, this, this whole Cubs rotation is a lot different when he succeeds. So on, on episode eight, I mentioned that I, I started some, to see some things in Jeremy Jeffress' mechanics that, let me, that led me to believe that, that things were going to get a little rougher going forward. I didn't see those things in Sunday's game. I, I wasn't seeing the same kind of, um, the same kind of issues and the same kind of, kind of pulling of a fastball but I thought he got tight, right? I mean, I, I think the issues he had Sunday was just not trusting a breaking ball, made a couple of good pitches with the breaking ball, but didn't want to trust anything. I, I don't know that he and Wilson were on the same page, I it, but it wasn't the same kind of thing that I'd saw coming into it. All that said, how did Craig Kimbrell look to you Sunday? I honestly, I don't know if I'm in the minority. I thought he looked pretty good. Uh, I thought his only bad at bat against was the Yasmani Grandal one. I think he he pretty much approached approached the Jose Abreu at bat well. There were a few of those breaking pitches outside of the zone, but that last one that Abreu took, I mean, that is a very tough pitch to take, and he's only doing that because of how well and how locked in he is right now. I honestly, I think I would have been okay with seeing Craig Kimbrell face one more batter. I mean, what was it, Jimenez at the time? Um I'm with you. It it did seem pretty shaky with Jeffries. I I know these guys are professional ball players, but that that's the most intense game that the Cubs have played this season. Oh yeah. And and I mean it's just again, it's it's the whole weekend building up to Sunday. I I mean that was that was just your atypical grade A entertainment, Cubs Sox rivalry. It was. That game was intense from start to finish. So I don't know if that that adrenaline gets to him a little bit more. Um but I would have been okay with seeing Kimbrel a little bit later. And I, I know it's it's funny because David Ross basically did what I said he should do at the beginning of the year. But since Kimbrel's been on this little, what, three, four-game streak now, we're definitely looking like he's improved mechanically, uh, location-wise, pitch-wise. I think I would have been okay with Kimbrel for one more batter. But, I, I mean, hey, David Ross got it right. I still think Jimenez got a pretty good swing on that last out to center field, and the Cubs nearly gave it away when David Bodie missed that pop fly in foul territory, but it, it worked. So, yes, good job, David Ross. Good good setup. I wouldn't be surprised if Kimbrell gets the next three-run save. You know, the, that the widest margin that is available to a closer to actually record a save, like the clean night, up 7-4. I bet the next one of those is Kimbrell's. I bet the next tight game is still Jeffress at this point, um, depending on you know how you got to use Rowan Wick or whatever. But if we're just picking between the two guys, I think that's your option. And I'm I'm weirdly fine with David Ross, like like very comfortable with David Ross picking his guy Wick, Kimbrel, Jeffress for whatever situation late and tight in a ball game. I didn't think that I would start to feel that way about a brand new manager with no experience managing a bullpen. Um, he's got a lot of help around him, right? He's got Mike Borzello. He's got Tommy Hadovy. He's got an entire pitching infrastructure that he's used and studied with really well to kind of figure this out. But my hat's off to him. 
He's managed a very tricky bullpen really well here over the first 27 games um, that the Cubs have played. I, I think that's something that Cubs fans should be really comfortable about or really happy about, at least early on in his in his managerial tenure, right? Yeah, I honestly think only David Ross in this situation can do that, given his, his history with Craig Kimbrell, given that David Ross was a guy that recommended Kimbrell to the Cubs. I mean, it's not that hard to recommend one of the best closers in baseball at the time, but still. Um, and honestly, good for Craig Kimbrell not making this a whole deal. I mean, good for him for accepting how he's pitched the past couple of years um, and just totally rolling with the punches. I mean, he he totally seems like a team player right now, so maybe that helps the overall ambiance. Um, way to way to not go full Papelbon, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Were they teammates? Good job. You're not Jonathan. No, 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 no. But Papelbon had the had the whole thing where he just. Well, he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, those that thing that that tends to happen. Which you know, whatever. I mean, like, <laughs> I get it. That's been your job for a while, but dude. Go ahead and just fight. Anyway, never go full Papelbon. Go ahead and just fight the best player on the team, right? Didn't he get in the riff with uh, Harper yeah, once? Yeah, he, he, he tried to choke Bryce Harper. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, don't just be a, a complete ass, and uh, we'll we'll like you on the Baseball From Home podcast. This is, this is on you, John. It's on you. Um, I, I, I'll say this about... David Ross when they when they hired him I wouldn't say I was skeptical but it was just the whole situation of yeah looks like it's probably going to be David Ross they've basically been grooming him for this job even though I thought some other candidates might have had a better shot but but once they hired him it was well of course who else would it be I still don't like how everyone calls him Rossi. I don't know. I, I just feel like that's that's such a team thing like only the team should be able to do that. I don't know. Has there ever been a case where you you call the coach or the manager by their nickname? I, maybe I'm overthinking it. Um, but you go to the contrast of him coming in for Joe Madden and the conversation of Joe Madden being too passive, too friendly, never laying the foot down, and that's the guy that David Ross can be, hold people accountable. It seems like that's the method that's really helping in this situation with Craig Kimbrell. Um, and another side note, one of the guys they hired, Andy Green, as their bench coach, uh, former manager of the Padres. He actually used to be in the Diamondback system, and I've heard nothing but splendid things about him through the minor league grapevine. So I almost wonder if that hire, whoever's decision it was, was to be the balancer out of the situation with David Ross being the angry guy, not the angry guy, but but the stern and authoritative figure. Because I think one of the first things that David Ross said when being hired was, listen, I, I don't care if the team is, is disagreeing with me or against me on something, but I want them to collaborate as a team and, and come together as a team. And, and if they got to be against me, okay, but at least they're together. So I, I think that's that's a, a, a working method right now for the Cubs, for David Ross and Craig Kimbrell. So I think Rossi's team is in a little trouble here, <laughs> right? I, I do think that they're... Did you did you call him Rossi just to spite me there? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's pure spite and hatred. I, it was either that or telling a joke about how Skip Carey probably called Bobby Cox <laughs> Coxie a lot on the broadcast. But it, I didn't think that was going to land. So I didn't make that joke. Joe, I would never do that on this podcast. Like, think of a joke that I think might work and just get a chance to make a penis riff for a minute and say Coxie. Like, that's, I would never do that. And I wouldn't spend our closing minutes 
doing okay. that joke. I would never. I would absolutely not. Of course. You're 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 doing anything but that we're, right we're now. We're editing all of this out, right? All of this is leaving the it's it's not sure. It's not. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe it'll make the director's cut. So so the Cubs get the Tigers for three in a row in Detroit, then they get the off day, and then they'll face the Cincinnati Reds. There is a scheduled doubleheader in that one on Saturday. I like good, go get the Tigers and and I guess go get healthy, though they're a better team than I thought they would be at this point, even though they they have tailed off since the first two weeks of the season. They are still, in my opinion, a better team than I thought they would be. This Chris Bryant thing has to resolve itself and and fast, but most importantly, most importantly, is Wilson Contreras has to get his head screwed on right. Javi Baez is gonna do stuff like this and we'll see where he bounces back to. Anthony Rizzo, I think, is going to be fine, right? He scratched his 0 for 15. Kyle Schwarber is going to be, I think, you know, the Kyle Schwarber that, that Cubs fans thought they'd get more out of, but not quite. It's Wilson Contreras with Chris Bryant out that has to get his at-bats together, and that's got to happen starting Monday night. Somebody asked me this weekend, man, how much better are the White Sox and the Cubs right now? And I know that makes Sox fans glee and Cubs fans just grind their teeth. And, of course, I reply with the traditional, well, it's three games, man. It's like, yeah, but it's a shortened season. It's like that doesn't that doesn't take away that you really can't compare two teams within three games. I get it. The severity of games mean more in a season and vying for a playoff, but but that's still a small sample size in terms of a team being head-to-head. I think this. I think the White Sox are the hottest team in baseball right now. They're hitting the bejesus out of the baseball, and they're capable of continuing it. Obviously not every game, but they're capable of continuing on a majority of a run like this. The Cubs are only being exposed for how good they can be when their stars do not play well. Because before, it was the depth, it was the middle-tier guys, and maybe some of the guys you had no idea that they'd come through, pulling through, and that's why they were a good team. But right now, Bryant non-existent, Javi Baez, it's not only offensive. I mean, he's making defensive miscues. Saturday was awful. Or was it Friday? Yeah, it was Saturday. Bad. What, two? Bad. So pretty much two errors. I mean, that that's not him. Like, even if he's not hitting well, he's typically got – the swagger and the Javi Baez magician and, and the magic glove, but that's not him. And yes, I couldn't agree more with, with Wilson Contreras needing to fine tune some things too, because if he's going to play that emotional, that can definitely work bad for the Cubs if it's in the negative way. That is episode nine of the Baseball from Home podcast. It was a fun Cubs Sox series. Sox came out way on top. Cubs had some things to worry about. You'll have another podcast, episode 10 comes out Friday. No, we're going to change it. That's right. Special announcement. We're gonna, Because of the schedule and both teams being off Thursday, episode 10 of the Baseball From Home podcast will come out Thursday morning. We're going to record Wednesday night. The episode will come out Thursday morning because nobody wants to wait a day and not see any baseball and then listen to your podcast. So we're going to give you what you want when you want it. Episode 10 comes out Thursday morning. He's Joe. I'm Connor. We'll talk to you then. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, 
offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.